Okay, so the story for today is that North Korea is celebrating a ballistic missile testing with outdoor concerts and mass dances. For some reason, this is how the rest of the world celebrates. India, North Korea, China, they just break out into mass dancing. Except North Korea is the only place that actually does it, because they actually believe that people do that in real life. Now, people in Hawaii know that North Korea has been launching these missiles all the time. And it shows up in the American newspapers maybe once a year. But people don't really remember it because they're normally aiming at us. They're normally aiming their missiles specifically at Hawaii for no reason whatsoever. And the missiles always fall into the Sea of Japan every single time. And it's always called a success because it is just a rocket test. Presumably it's intended to fall into the Sea of Japan. But I don't think so. I think the missiles are always supposed to hit us and it just never does. Back about a month ago, North Korea actually threatened to turn both Seoul and Washington into a heap of ashes. So that has nothing to do with the missile tests that they're operating now. Of course, that's a little bit alarmist because they did say that they will only do that if we show any signs of aggression towards the North. Which we probably will because we're showing signs of aggression everywhere always right now. The entire world has devolved into complete insanity. At this point, the Philippines will probably attack North Korea, or North Korea will attack the Philippines, and World War will begin with players that we never thought possible. Because the danger of North Korea is that we don't take them seriously. We don't take them seriously because they have no resources and they've never been able to do anything. But what if... <laughs> what if they just happen to anger the wrong person at the wrong time, and the world just goes into complete nuclear chaos? I was just reading Dataclism for my book club, and that damn book club is still meeting every two weeks for no reason at all. Dataclism is by one of the founders of OkCupid, and if you follow data science at all, you know that OkCupid often posts things about their users, because privacy doesn't matter anymore. It's, it's anonymized information. But they tend to make very broad conclusions where they really shouldn't, and Dataclism is actually no different. It begins with two chapters about what people find exciting, what people find attractive, and then it throws that all out the window and goes, by the way, this only applies to white people because the white data was cleaner and I couldn't figure out the colored data. Decent amount of time showing me data as though it pertained to the human race when it really only pertained to white people, but that's fine. I mean, the other thing is, and he discusses this in the book, is that there is a self-selection bias because if you've been on OkCupid, and I've talked about this before, you know that most of the people there are freaking insane. So you are self-selecting from a bunch of crazy people, myself included. One of the most interesting things that he discusses, though, is that women tend to look for men that are within about three years of their age range. They only want people with that are a little bit older than them, mostly. But men, this, no matter what they say, only want 21 to 24 year olds and it's normally 20 to 22 year olds but sometimes it gets up to 24 universally up to the age of 50 and 60 which is about what we would expect it's just different to see it in raw data staring you in the face so now women know that no matter how much their man tells them that they love them they're really looking for a 20 year old and just settling for them and now men know that no matter how much they lie to themselves, they still really want that 20-year-old. I cannot say the phrase race statistics. Okay, the race statistics 
were actually the most depressing thing because it showed that just across the board, our attractiveness is influenced not only by our race, but by the race that's looking at us. And it is depressing because it's something that we cannot control. And especially as our diversity grows and we have to deal more and more with people, it's questionable, will these boundaries go away or will they just be highlighted more? Will we start seeing other races as more attractive or will we just realize that we find them less attractive just because of the lizard brain in us that wants it to be us versus them? One of the interesting things that, that's just horrible is that black women will lose a significant amount of attractiveness to everyone across the board, including black men. And you have to think that that cannot possibly be something that is innate or biological. That has to be something that is ingrained in our culture and our society. That has to be something that has to be something that's hurting people from outside. Obviously, if there are black men and black women in a black community, they would find themselves equally attractive. But you put people in our society and suddenly we find them unattractive. That has to be socially ingrained racism. It has to be. But it doesn't just do the dating thing, which is interesting. It also, cover it also covers some other things, such as Twitter controversies. Like a long time ago, there was this woman, a white woman, and she jumps on a plane and she tweets something like, I'm heading to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Huge shitstorm emerges. This woman's on a plane, so she can't check her device. But while she's on the plane, people are talking about getting her fired, getting her harassed at the airport, etc. because this is a horribly racist thing she said. Of course, if you really look at the tweet, it's obviously making fun of her own white privilege. She doesn't really think that white people can't get AIDS. She's making fun of white people who think that. But of course, it was not a great thing to post. It really wasn't. The internet makes it so accessible, we can make stupid mistakes almost immediately. Anyway, long story short, this woman was fired, and she never really fully recovered, at least according to most of the articles that were written about her afterwards. And there's this internet compulsion to jump on board of these things. It's a mob mentality, and Dataclism discusses that, this sort of virtual stoning that we do. A really long time ago, there was this girl, about 19, who got into a car accident. And she was driving a Ferrari or some other sports car. And the first responders took pictures of the accident just as they should, but they released them as they shouldn't have. These pictures showed the girl almost headless. And they were very vivid and very graphic. So the internet immediately began sending these pictures to the girl's surviving sister and her parents. Now, you didn't miss a leap in logic there. That's just how the internet works. And they kept doing that. They kept harassing them with physical mail, with text messages, with email. In fact, the girl's sister even found these pictures photocopied inside of her locker. The family had done nothing wrong except be rich. And when the story was released, the fact that the girl had been driving a Ferrari or something, for some reason that fueled people's minds. But once something like that starts, it's almost impossible to stop. We have the Boston Bomber thing from Reddit, where everyone was so convinced that they had found the Boston Bomber because they found a kid with a backpack. And of course, it turns out that that wasn't the Boston Bomber at all, and he was missing because he killed himself. When internet things get started, they develop a life of their own, and we all want to pile on because we all want to be part of that thing. We all want to be the person who was there when we did it.
And there is that reckless amorality there, where we don't really think or care about whether what we're doing is right or wrong, we just care whether it's satisfying at a given time. There has to be some sort of disassociation there, some kind of aggression towards the unidentified, where we don't see people face to face anymore, so we don't have to care about their feelings. And we also don't care about what's going on in the world. There's the identifiable victim theory that states that unless there's an identifiable victim, we really don't care. 10,000 people can die, and we don't care. But one girl whose face we actually see, whose name we know, we're going to care about her death. Because numbers are abstract. 10,000 people dying is nonsense to us. But we see these people thrown into a grave, and then we know. It makes sense. It makes sense because we are people who evolved face-to-face -face in small tribes, and we can't handle these levels of abstraction. We just don't know how to deal with them. And we see all of this craziness happening, but it's very localized craziness. We know that a hospital was bombed somewhere by a drone attack, and we get sad, but we don't do anything about it because it's not right outside our window. We actually cannot conceive of it in a reality that's near us. But anyway, back to dataclism. They also notice that there's differences in the way that people talk about themselves, whether they're straight or gay. And it was interesting because lesbians, straight men, and straight women all tended to talk a lot about what they expected from their, from their partner. But gay men really just talked about the media that they liked. And that's something really interesting because a profile isn't just how we define ourselves. A profile is also how we want other people to see us. And for most people, it was just a list of requirements. You will be this. You will be this. You will be this. And maybe it would be an occasional, I am this. I have kids. I don't have kids, etc. But for gay men, it was more of a reaching for common ground. They just listed the things that they liked. And you could make a lot of conclusions about this. You could just say that it's cultural, or you could say that it's because gay men have to restrict themselves to fewer social stereotypes. You could say a lot of things, but it's actually just interesting that there is that difference. And there were vast differences in the way people talk, too. White men, Asian men, black men, all said completely different things when he combed through their frequent vocabularies. So it's interesting to see that we still have all of these differences. Even though we live in a society that's so enmeshed, even though we work and live and love together, we're all very different. And we are less tolerant of these differences than we think. Nearly everyone likes to think that they're not racist, that they're not biased. But the truth is that the data supports the fact that yes, we all are to differing degrees and that we might be more than we think. And of course, data can only show you what is, especially statistics. It can't tell you why. The whole refugee problem that's existing now is because people are stepping on each other's toes. People are almost too close now. And there's so much aggression now because we have so many distinct varieties of people in a singular space. And ultimately, the decision really is going to be whether we want to keep ourselves more distinct or become more homogenous. But if we decide to be homogenous, we have to be willing to compromise on both sides. And if we decide to be distinct, we have to be willing to respect each other's rights.
In any case, that's way too much to think about for a Friday. Have a great weekend and tune in Monday through Friday at 6 o'clock p.m. Central and follow me on Twitter at jkiloindia.